0: Welcome to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is super confused by that most recent medical study you heard about in the news. I am Matt Fox, Professor of Epidemiology and Global Health. I am here, as usual, with Don Thea and Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Hey, Hey, Matt. Matt. And we are—apparently they speak in unison—we are here in the Boston University godly studio, no jokes, Chris— And we are truly excited to have a couple of guests in the studio with us today, both of them from the Boston University School of Public Health Department of Biostatistics, one of whom is going to feature in segment one. That's Ludovic Trinkwart. Did I say it right? You did. Close enough. Uh, And one who'll be featuring in segment two, that's Mike LaValle, so we'll bring him in later. Before we get started, we did want to take a second to remind you about the Population Health Exchange. That's Boston University School of Public Health Resource Hub for Lifelong Learning. Find out more at www.pophealthyx.org, where you'll find this podcast, as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. And as a reminder, go ahead and give us a rating on iTunes and any of your other favorite podcast... Uh, yep. Yelp. Download Yelp. You want to give us a Yelp rating, we're, we'll take that, whatever you want. The delivery was slow, whatever it is. <laughs> the jokes uh, were lame. The, uh In addition, uh, Ludovic has an announcement to make about uh, something really important.
1: So, Mike Lavalle and I are excited to launch a new course for the PHX Summer Institute. We'll give a a three-day course on systematic reviews and a two-day course about metanases.
0: And so, how do people uh, sign up for that?
1: Uh, You can uh, register on the the Population Health Exchange website.
0: And is that a a course that you pay for, or is that a... How does this work?
1: Yeah. You uh
0: make <laughs> make checks payable directly to you <laughs> or it. to, to, to the it. uh to the to the university. All right, you'll find that all out on the on Boy, the he's website. got
2: a real FM voice, doesn't he?
0: He does. Unlike us, we're all trebly. He sounds smooth jazz. <laughs> yeah. Really. All right. Well, now we gotta up our game. I know. So now let's uh let's get into the show. So today, in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we are gonna talk about a study. Uh, That talks about the benefits of various antidepressant drugs for treatment of major depressive disorder. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive segment, we're going to talk about what what are the pros and cons of meta-analysis and what you should be looking out for when you read them. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing segment, we will get into some of the things that have a snickering in the hallways. And uh, we do want to let you know that we have now put Chris on a on a timer for his. Uh, God so only knows why. I'm the best yeah, I, I, so we will try and keep him to a a reasonable time frame, half an hour, half an hour at most. Absolutely. So let's get into our our first segment. Uh, before we get into the uh, specifics of this study, Ludovic, can I ask you to explain a little bit about yourself, and hopefully that lets people know why you're here.
1: Yes, I'm uh, an assistant professor in the department of Birth statistics. And most of my research has focused on uh, evidence synthesis, meta-analyses, uh, this novel form of meta called network meta that we're going to talk about, uh, meta-analysis of observational studies as well.
2: Wow, we have a rare. Well, yeah,
0: we have somebody who actually knows what I they're know. talking about, How which unusual. is that's breaking the mold. Yeah, it's a bit. Uh, it's a bit unusual, but we'll go with it. So, uh, segment one. We're, so we're going to get an article that looks at the effectiveness of various antidepressant drugs. And this is a study that you can imagine has gotten a lot of attention. Uh, Appears to be a little bit controversial as well. Uh, And it came to us directly from Ludovic. So that's part of why he's here in addition to his expertise on the matter. The study was published in The Lancet. Uh, The first author was uh, Andrea Cipriani of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom. And it is entitled Comparative Efficacy and Acceptability of 21 Antidepressant Drugs. For the Acute Treatment of Adults with Major Depressive Order, a Systematic Review, and Network Meta-Analysis. So let me give you some of the headlines on this one. So Time Magazine says, These antidepressants are most effective. I don't really know what that one means. Antidepressants do work, and many more people should take them, Major International Study says. That's from Newsweek. Most popular drugs prescribed for depression work, but they're not perfect, says Business Insider. And massive new study finds antidepressants work better than placebo. That's from Nova. So uh, a lot of headlines, which I'm not sure actually sum up what the study was really you know all about.
3: That is a remarkable thing for Nova to say. Like, like I, mean, I so, should to, be clear to phrase it that way. That massive new study shows Nova that next Nova next. Well, still, but that massive new study. Quote massive. Yep shows that 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 antidepressants are better than a sugar pill
0: it's misleading i would say i think this cuts into
2: chris's 30 minutes
0: all right okay uh so in that let's uh let's start with you don can you can you give us the overview with the study with the full
2: understanding that you are
0: not an expert in network meta-analysis and we're not going to embarrass you
2: by asking you to explain what that is but just give us totally faking it here yeah all right let me give you a little background so um this is a massive study, and it addresses an issue that is really of great global importance, which is depression. Um, it's, I think, one of the major um, non-communicable diseases that has been identified in the Global health, um, global Burden of Disease Studies. Yeah. And it comprises, I think, 20-some-odd percent of the global bur- global burden of disease affecting about 350 million people um, globally. Um, that said, it is also an area that has been extensively researched in terms of the efficacy of these particular medications. With I think in one. Um, counting there were over a thousand randomized controlled trials that have been done to date That's on amazing. various um, 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 anti antidepressives um, and there's so there's lots of rcts and there 's lots of ways to com- compare them. Um, the ones that have been done previously that have been included in prior meta analyses were compared with a placebo or a head to head analysis. The placebo controlled, randomized controlled trials are fairly self explanatory. The head to head comparisons are where a new drug that is just being introduced is being compared to best alternative therapy uh, or therapy that has previously been proven to be efficacious. And now we're in a position where we've got lots and lots of these various medicines. And so what these authors tried to do was try to use this newfangled technique, which we're going to hear all about from Ludovic. Takes into consideration um, a lot of data that has been published on 21 um, antidepressive medications, and try to really um, make 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 your way through what is really a uh, you know a, um, a thicket of of different different comparisons. So the goal for this was to compare and rank the antidepressants for unipolar major depressive illness. What the authors did was did a systematic review. Um, where they collected for these twenty-one antidepressants um, all of the published and and as much of the unpublished literature as they could find, and and I have to really give it to them for the effort that they went through to dig up all of the data that was not easily accessible through the normal means. So they 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 went to clinicaltrials.gov um, and they you know they they screened that and they collected all of those. They actually contacted the pharmaceutical companies and. Um, got uh, trial information from them, and they included all of those. So it's a, it's a very comprehensive database. They, they excluded trials that were quasi-randomized, that were incomplete, or included more than um, 20% of um, the depressive subjects who, were, uh, who had an associated um, bipolar disorder. Um, or studies that included psychotic depression, treatment-resistant depression, or serious comorbid conditions. So it's a, it's, it, they tried to h- homogenize the population as, as much as possible. And they went through a, a systematic assessment of bias in the studies that were included in this meta-analysis. I don't know if we're going to get into that maybe um, in, in any detail. Um so the primary outcome was efficacy. Outcomes were efficacy, which was the response rate, and acceptability, which they defined as all-cause discontinuation. So they, they managed to collect uh, 28,000 citations and winnowed that down to 522 trials with 117,000 participants. And they tested for, as I mentioned, 21 antidepressive medications um, and placebo. Um, and the bottom line is that overall... Antidepressants were found to be more effective le- than placebo with an odds ratio ranging from 2.13 to 1.37, um, and uh, they were generally acceptable with all but two antidepressants um, associated with more dropouts than placebo. Um, there were smaller differences between active drug um, th- were found with placebo-controlled trials versus head-to-head trials whereas there was more variability and efficacy and acceptability in the head-to-head trials. So bottom line is they seem to work.
0: They seem to work and done across a, a large number of different studies in a lot of different contexts. But as you say, they tried to sort of in some way homogenize the population a little bit to at least be looking at the same condition. So, uh, Ludovic, can I then start with you and ask you to give me your critique of this study? And in particular, can you address the question of... Did we actually need this study given that there had been a, a previous meta-analysis done by the same group? Uh, I'm not sure how much, how long ago. Or, may,
2: or maybe, Matt, what we should do is we should start with a description of network meta-analysis since <laughs> I, I failed in that or didn't even attempt to do that.
0: If you want to go with this in a logical way, yeah. you're welcome to do so. But I think uh, that's 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 not but, what we do. That's unusual. Huh?
1: Go All for right. it. So I'll start with uh, yeah. an explanation. Yeah. Um, so, as, as you know, uh, conventional RCTs compare uh, two drugs, drug A versus B, and conventional metanases synthesize the results of several RCTs. Um, as you've described, we're in a situation where we have multiple treatments that are competing, and the question is no longer is drug A doing better than placebo. The question is among treatments A, B, C, D, E, which are the best or which one is the best? Uh, problem is... We lack randomized controlled trials, and it's just a, a question of feasibility and cost. Uh, here we have 21 antidepressant drugs. That makes uh, 21 times 20 divided by 2, 210 comparisons. So you need at least 210 RCTs to inform each of the possible comparison between the drugs.
0: Or one giant trial in which we randomize people to 2, <laughs> 2, 21 2, different arms. 21
1: arms.
2: Um, I think we'd need more than 350 million depressed people. That's fair enough.
1: So th- this is where this uh, mathematical model uh, comes handy. Um, so it relies on, on uh, two, two principles or two stages. The first one is using indirect information when you don't have an RCT comparing drug A to drug B, but you do have RCTs comparing A to placebo and B to placebo you're going to use the transitivity principle. So if uh, Matt is taller than Don and Don is taller than Chris, Matt is taller than Chris. Uh, Simple, I I like it.
3: Which I am. Mm -hmm. It's true. Yeah. So far, so good.
1: So uh, we do that based on effect sizes. And so if the effect size of A versus placebo is better than the effect size of B versus placebo, we conclude mathematically that A is doing better than B. Um, And if there's no bias in the component trials, it's mathematical, so it's unbiased. Mm -hmm. The second step is, in a situation where you do have at least one RCT comparing A to B, then why would you use the indirect evidence and use trials versus placebo? So the, the reason why is to use all the information that is available and thus increase statical power and precision, provided that the information uh, given by the head-to-head trials is consistent with the information obtained by the indirect sources. So that's it. That's network meta analysis using indirect information and combining it with direct information provided by head-to-head trials.
3: And this is what allowed them to to create this hierarchy of effect sizes from biggest to smallest.
1: You're right. There are two objectives uh, when reporting the results of a network meta-analysis. The first one is to document all possible two-by-two comparisons between the drugs. So here we want effect sizes for the 210 comparisons between antidepressants. we also want something that is more easily uh, approachable mm-hmm. and people aim for uh, a hierarchy a ranking a rank order of efficacy or safety between all those trucks
0: and so what's your what's your take on this one i mean do you do you buy the conclusions this-
1: so l- let me let me address your first question and was it uh, justified do we need oh, this right. uh, yeah. additional network maintenance um, so It's an update, as you mentioned, of their previous effort that was published in Lancet as well in 2009. And they've considerably expanded uh, the amount of evidence Mm. that is covered by the systematic review. So in a sense, yes, uh, it's... We do need it. We we do need it. Okay. Uh, The previous network meta-analysis covered 12 agents. Now they're covering 21. Uh, They've also um, provided uh, an incredible effort to identify unpublished data. So uh, they were able to identify unpublished information for more than half of the trials included in the, the synthesis.
0: Which just strikes me as uh, unbelievable that they were able to get this much unpublished data into a meta-analysis. It's
1: yes. Astounding. It, uh, it, it reflects the the overall quality of the, mm. the effort. It's all, it also illustrates um, a very important point in my view. It's that this reporting bias issue is not binary, it's not um, is it published or not, it's a time to event issue when we finally get access to reports of trials. Um, It becomes available through the Food and Drug Administration uh, that makes available reviews, Uh, it becomes available through um, the pharmaceutical industry when uh, researchers uh, contact them, Um, and so. It means that the evidence base is evolving with time. Um, Now, as you mentioned, the conclusion is that um, all antidepressant drugs are uh, beneficial as compared to placebo. And the second conclusion is that when comparing the different drugs against each other, the effect sizes are relatively modest. So one may say that this conclusion is not new and that overall uh, This network meta-analysis doesn't add much to what was known previously, and in particular, previous meta-analyses reached the the same conclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, A prominent meta-analysis in uh, PLUS Medicine by Kirsch and colleagues in 2008 uh, showed about the same uh, magnitude for the effect size. Uh, Eric Turner published a a prominent article in the New England Journal of Medicine that already incorporated and published data and uh, reached... Uh, pretty similar effect sizes.
0: So overall the you you would say that would you say that the quality of the meta analysis is good the information that we obtained from it is is impressive but it's not particularly novel not particularly new uh, given what we already knew.
1: Correct. But okay.
0: All right. Um Chris how about you what's your what, what was your take when you read this?
3: Yeah, no so it's a very um I mean got to, what has to imagine the amount of work that that went into this is Exhausting. Is, is, a bit, is a bit humbling. Um, not just in finding the, 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 the papers, but in ranking their, their quality, et cetera. I mean, it was, it was a spectacular undertaking.
0: Uh, it's got a, a web appendix of like 250 pages. Which I confess I did not read oh. before really the cool. session. <laughs> yeah. I, I figured
3: <laughs> that one of the, one of you would have. Oh, fantastic. So. He's sandbagging um, on us.
0: Yeah. Uh. Oh, we'll get back to you, Don. <laughs> so, Don't worry. No.
3: I want to I, I want to I steer I, I want to steer this a little bit towards the this companion editorial that was published in the British Medical Journal, mm-hmm. yep. um, which is a sort of an unusual thing that is like a sister journal uh, will publish the editorial as opposed to the um, the New England Journal. It's uh, was it Lancet excuse me Lancet the published, Lancet published the
0: paper. BMJ you're publish saying, published the in an editorial.
3: editorial and the editorial made some some really important points which is, which I'll, I'll sort of click through and the editorial was McCormick and Karounik. Um, and it was published in 2018, uh, just shortly after. And so the key points to, to note, one, is that All of these studies focus specifically on patients with very severe depression. Mm -hmm. That is to say, a Hamilton depression score greater than 26. And the Hamilton scale, I looked it up yesterday, goes from 0 to 50. And anything, you know, 7 or below is considered normal. So 26 is very, very impaired. So this is severe depression. Um, And and that's important because in clinical practice, antidepressants are used not just for patients with severe depression. They're Mm -hmm. used for patients with mild or moderate depression. And none of the data here give us Any insight whatsoever into how depression, how antidepressants might. Function in patients who have mild or moderate depression? We just mm-hmm. don't know. In fact, none of the clinical data really answers this question. So that's important to keep in mind. The second one is the duration. That generally, these studies were pretty short. You know, eight weeks would be a typical length. Um, and since we know that on average it takes four to six weeks before antidepressants really have much of an observable clinical effect, you can sort of see that an eight-week trial is not actually telling you very much. Mm-hmm. That's useful because by that time you've barely got through the run-in period before you're starting to see any clinical efficacy. And
0: Primary endpoint for this study was eight weeks. Was it eight weeks? Was eight it eight weeks? Was improvement at eight weeks.
3: So that that's a very important distinction too. That sort of you know colors how we think about these data as they apply to clinical practice. Because typically, when patients are started on on like Prozac, they will be started on Prozac for mild to moderate depression because it's very common, uh, and they will be started on this med and they will take it for ever. Ever, they will not stop it at eight weeks, which is really what these data are sort of suggesting, or the psychological associations are saying. They would would take it indefinitely, even after the depression has resolved, Mm. as sort of like a hypothetical prophylaxis against the next. About of, of depression. Mm-hmm. And there is no evidence in this meta-analysis that tells us anything about whether these, these drugs can prevent depression or
2: prevent relapse. Or, we have or, or no data. Or really in any of the RCTs that have been done. They're all right. characterized by being very short in duration. So w- we often talk about in this podcast, like who is the study about
3: and, and who yeah. are we applying the data to? And this is such a good example of how the meta-analysis tells us something very narrow that really does not in any way mimic clinical practice in the least. Mm-hmm. And so that is an important thing for for the, the folks out there to, to notice.
0: Anything else you want to
3: add? Uh, I have, I, you know, I, on this one, I, I have so much to say about it, but I want I pass, pass right, so to pass
0: off to two give, of you. Let me let me give Donna, Donna a chance to weigh in if, if you got any comments before I jump in.
2: Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I learned about from reading this study and from reading some of the other studies that um, were cited in in this is that um, the placebo effect... It's massive. It has, has, has a profound effect... In these particular um, these particular studies, and um, that I, I didn't realize it, but that has been shown fairly conclusively that simply intervening um, with a with a pill, and presumably it is the the intervention, it's the it's the human contact, it's the structured follow up that, that's a, that's associated with being involved in these studies that um, explains at least part of the effect, and that could in part explain why. We found a relatively mild excess effect in the particular drugs that were being looked at
0: because depression is susceptible to the placebo effect. Correct. Is what you're saying. Correct, and yep. is
2: also self resolving in mm. most cases. And there was what I'd like to do is I just want to read one quote from yeah. um, an article by one of our our heroes, which is John Ioannidis,
0: who is, by the way, is an author on this. Analysis. Right,
2: right, um, and this this paper was in philosophy, ethics, and humanities, and medicine. Effectiveness of antidepressants: an evidence myth constructed from a thousand randomized trials? Question mark, and um, he has one line which I thought is great. It says, uh, "Well, it's actually two lines. Perhaps most people given antidepressants for depressive symptoms would just need some attention from their physician and people to talk to and take some care." Of them, antidepressants may be covering largely the lost placebo of human interaction and patient-physician interaction that has become so sparse in modern society.
0: Mm-hmm. So, can I? Can I? That's a perfect place for me to jump in, if you don't mind. Nope. Uh, on this placebo effect, because this is something that really fascinates me, which is. Um, First of all in the reporting of this 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 meta analysis nowhere even in the 250 thousand odd page appendix all of which you read I read every I read it cover to cover uh, I cannot find the probabilities of the events themselves am I am I missing anything did you all come across the actual cure rates in in anywhere Did you
2: read the meta appendix
0: Oh obviously Yeah no
3: they 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 only talk in relative terms they don't talk in, in terms of the absolute effect
0: I came across I did come across a number which said that about thirty to forty percent of patients improve in the placebo group. And one of the things that Ionides talks about, I think, or maybe I read it somewhere else, but is the idea that that one of the criticisms that you could you could you could give to these trials uh, is that you could you could theoretically manipulate these studies if you wanted to make your antidepressant look good by first having a run-in period where you gave people a placebo, a whole bunch of them would be cured, and then you're just left over with the group that is, not susceptible to this placebo effect, and then your antidepressants would look really good. And you
2: exclude those that improved on placebo.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't see that as a problem. Mm -hmm. I don't see why we wouldn't want to actually do that. If we think that the placebo effect is really, truly effective, why wouldn't we want to actually take advantage of that and save the antidepressants for people who we think are really going to need it? To that effect, um, so then it it starts to... to, So if you're saying, well, 30 to 40% of patients cure on their own or with the placebo depending on how you you would define it um all of these effects are which we said were sort of modest are defined in terms of odds ratios if the baseline probability is 30 to 40% then an odds ratio is going to overestimate the relative mm-hmm. effect such that these mild sized relative effects are actually even probably inflated would mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. would you all agree with that statement is that Absolutely. In fact, the, the,
3: the, the BMJ editorial uh, tries to take on that very issue. Mm. And, the, you know, they, they say, like, when you sort of break down the odds ratio and you look at the absolute effect sizes, that about 40, um, you know, like, let's say that for half, I'm assuming you have 10 patients who mm-hmm. were, had major depression and you give them any one of these antidepressants and you take sort of the average of the antidepressants, five of them are not going to get better mm-hmm. and five of them are going to get better. That's sort of the, the the natural history of this 50% disease. Fifty percent will recover. Of the fifty percent who recovered, forty percent will recover because of the placebo effect, and ten percent will recover because of the drug. Mm. And so, what you're you're buying in a cohort of ten depressed patients is you are achieving one cure, meaning that the number needed to treat is ten for all, for on average for these drugs, which again is is quite different from the popular conception about about their effect, efficacy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I think that that gets a little bit lost. The other thing I wanted to say was, um, you know, we, the headlines sell this as a very massive study, and it is massive in the sense that it's got about one hundred fifteen thousand patients. But when you start thinking about twenty-one different comparisons and the amount of data that's feeding into each one of those comparisons, the numbers get a fair bit smaller. And the average size of these trials they said was about two hundred twenty-four patients, which is not a very large study and and if there is publication bias or there are, you know studies that are missing, small studies may actually be exaggerating the size of these effects, which is something that's a, a little bit concerning. I am totally impressed by the fact that they were able to dig up all this additional data, but I am a little bit concerned that the the evidence starts to look more impressive than it is. Uh, just based on the on the size of those different studies themselves, I don't know.
3: Yeah, I, I don't know if you if you guys picked this up when they were just describing the the distribution of the the drugs that were studied, um, and I and I, I calculated that here because I was impressed by it. 117 of the 522 were for phloxetine, I, i.e., Prozac. Um, 114 were for. Um, Paroxetine, paroxetine. i.e. Paxil, and 96 were for amitriptyline. So those three drugs accounted for 53% of all of the studies that were in this meta-analysis. And the remaining 30%, 37% was everything else. So this meta-analysis is incredibly skewed towards actually three drugs.
0: Yeah, and so it's something we certainly want to take into account. The last point I wanted to make was it surprised me that uh, there were so many placebo-controlled trials done here because antidepressants have been around for a long time and presumably have been demonstrated to be effective given that they are on the market, why they were able to do so many different trials in which they compared to placebo as opposed to compared to an active comparison was unclear to me. I don't know, Ludovic, if you had any insight on that one.
1: It's been described uh, multiple times. So the overall network uh, includes older trials. Mm -hmm. Uh, They went back to uh, 1979. Um, And... One explanation is that there are not many incentives to run head-to-head trials comparing active drugs against each other. For instance, the, the approval by the regulatory agencies requires submission of placebo-controlled trials. That might explain...
0: For, for a new drug, when there is already an effective treatment, they would still require placebo-controlled trials?
1: That, that's the, the rule.
0: How do you? How would you get that past a, an ethics board? Let's say, I mean, so let's say I want to develop a new antibiotic. I couldn't compare that to placebo for treatment of of pneumonia.
2: Maybe because there's no best alternative therapy. That, there are a that, lot of alternative so therapies. So you're saying
0: this is the case for antidepressants, but yes, not not yes. across the board. I see. Pro, okay,
1: provided you have uh, remaining uncertainty.
0: I see. Okay. Hmm. Um. Any other any other issues people want to raise before we...
2: Yeah, I, I, I thought it would be interesting maybe to hear at Ludovic. Um, you describe a little bit about how the assessment of bias for the studies that were included in this meta-analysis is done, just in sort of very lay terms.
1: Right. Uh, I, I would focus on uh, two points. The first one I mentioned in the introduction, it's that the major assumption in this analysis is that the evidence coming from head-to-head trials, the direct information... Uh, needs to agree with the indirect information coming from uh, trials uh, with uh, comparing drugs to other comparators. Uh, so that, that's the, the first assumption you want to, uh, to verify. Um, that's what the, the authors did. And overall, um, they found that about 9% of the 93 comparisons... Nine? 9% uh, showed statically significant evidence of uh, inconsistency, meaning that the head-to-head trials give effect sizes that are not compatible with effect sizes coming from indirect evidence. Hmm. That's for the primary outcome. So what, can does, I, that, what does that mean?
0: Wait, wait, can, I, can I weigh in on this? Because it seems to me there, there's no necessary reason for this consistency to exist because the placebo effect could vary, the baseline could vary. In other words, in some populations you may be very susceptible to the placebo effect and you know, 50% of your population gets better and another 10%, and therefore the relative comparison is going to be very different depending on what that comparison looks like in your particular population.
1: You're right, Matt. One explanation to the (gasps) inconsistency. Noted. (laughs) (laughs) One explanation is that um, we we think of the placebo as a common comparator, but it's really not. Yeah, Uh, it's complicated. uh, Another uh, explanation could be that there, there is bias. Uh, you have bias either in the placebo control trials or you have bias in the head-to-head trials. Uh, one peculiar aspect in that network is the vast majority of head-to-head trials were funded, promoted by the industry, and um, meaning that the pharmaceutical companies have um, complete control on the design, conduct, and reporting of these trials. Yep.
0: So that was 78%, I think, of all trials and I'm not sure what it was of the head-to-head, but 78%
2: of all of these trials were, were drug company trials, and certainly that could, could play a role. So, so Ludovic, of those 9% that they identified where there were inconsistent findings between direct and indirect in the head-to-head, did they exclude those data, or did they simply control for that, 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 no, that
1: heterogeneity? That, that's an excellent question. Um,
0: well done, Don. <laughs> we so, need to bring Ludovic back because he know, gives us positive like feedback. <laughs> all right.
1: So uh, the authors here decided to report the findings combining the direct and indirect evidence Mm. across the whole network. Inclusive. So the primary analysis that is reported and um, that is the basis of the conclusion does not address this inconsistency.
2: Interesting.
1: Um, So I I agree with you. It raises this question. When uh, facing this inconsistency, should you go for the weighted average? Mm. combining the two sources of information, or should you try to tear things apart and identify the best source of information? Meaning, would you look rather at the head-to-head trials or maybe uh, the placebo control trials or uh, an indirect source of information? What is mm-hmm. the answer? I think um, it's, um, it should be documented by uh, the second part, which is... Uh, an assessment of the risk of bias in individual studies. Yep. And I'm not sure you want to combine uh, apples and oranges. Mm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So we 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 need to move on to our second segment. So so let me get your get your last takes. What do people think? Overall, you impressed with this study or what's your what's your final thought?
3: Uh, I'm I'm in, I'm impressed with the study.
0: Yeah, me too. I'm
3: unimpressed with antidepressants. Mm. I find the
2: data on the antidepressants decidedly depressing.
0: Unfortunately, I, I, I share that, Don. Yeah, I'm impressed
2: with the study and the rigor that they that they approached it, uh, but I guess I'm more impressed with the placebo effect. And the It, qu- it the, is amazing. The question, mean, it really is. the question really is, should we pull the blanket off the placebo effect because the placebo effect apparently has some function in society.
0: Agreed. I think we want to be very clear what we're talking about here, that we're not talking about all depression or all conditions here. We're, we're, we're really talking about... Just what this meta-analysis foc- yes. focused on, so yes, that absolutely, obviously, these these are severe conditions for which the drugs do well. We don't. I, I haven't reviewed the evidence on other conditions, but fair enough. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Ludovic, for joining us for this segment. And, thank you for uh, having me. Well, hopefully, we'll have you back again sometime. Yeah, cool.
3: Love to. Cheers.
0: Okay, so now for our second segment, we are going to take advantage of the fact that we have actually here at Boston University. a... Resident expert on meta-analysis. Another expert. <laughs> another
4: expert on meta-analysis. Uh, Mike Lavalley. Mike, do you want to say a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. I'm a, a professor of biostatistics here at Boston University, and I've been here for a long time. Couple Let me of put years. It that way. Yeah, <laughs> a couple of years. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, we I, published a paper together. Yes, I published a paper with Chris. It was great. And me. And you. Well, you and
3: I
0: not together, but, but Mike and I <laughs> this have. This is a Please.
3: network meta-analysis right here. Well, uh, I published with him. He's published with you. So we published together.
0: I feel left out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Don. Isn't that how it works? Uh, I also should say uh, Mike has uh, teaches several courses here at Boston University they are excellent courses. I have taken two of them, one of which was a meta-analysis course. So uh, a great opportunity. And so we thought we would take this time... To basically just grill you on <laughs> meta-analysis questions that we have, so that in the future when we do reviews of meta-analysis, we can stop sounding like total fools. So, um, can you just sort of start us off by um, talking about one of the things that we focus on is when we're reviewing papers. What are the what are the key things that we're looking for to decide whether or not something is a is high quality or low quality? Mm-hmm. Recognizing there's a continuum when you're reviewing a meta-analysis what are the things that we should be looking out for to determine whether something's a a good meta-analysis or a a bad one?
4: Well, I think one of the the things you want to look at first is the comprehensiveness of the literature that's put together for this. Um, It's sometimes difficult to judge if if it's an area you're not that familiar with, but you should really uh, try to make sure that the authors have put their time in in terms of getting together uh, a really... Good and robust cross section of the articles on this particular topic. And in the paper you guys were just discussing, uh, the network meta analysis, it was pretty clear that they had done that, you know, and more. They had really gone out of their way to get unpublished data and really you know, sort of beat beat the bushes to find whatever they could get. Um, and that's sort of the level of rigor you want to see in a search for literature in, in any meta-analysis or systematic review.
0: And so are you actually going, because it's the part where I mm-hmm. tune out completely, do you actually look at the search terms themselves and see whether or not you think they've gotten
4: it right? Well, I try to, but again, if it's sort of outside an area where I have some scientific background, uh, mm-hmm. it's hard to know. Um, you know there are synonyms for particular key terms that if you work in the area you would know of and so you, you sort of do have to depend on whoever's reviewing the paper to be a subject matter expert and to look for that sort of thing. Um, and, and also if you're if you're knowledgeable in the, in the literature, you would know if they miss a particular key study um, and you want to make sure that those key studies, are either in the meta-analysis or they have a good reason why it's not there. Mm-hmm. You know they've got their inclusion criteria set up in a way that would you know knock this study out for whatever reason.
0: And so uh, you've got a, a body of, of, of studies that you pulled together for a particular topic. Um, then the, the, the authors are then going to go through and try and decide, you know, extract the information and put it together. What should I be looking for there? In terms of the quality of the, the actual extraction and analysis,
4: well, it, here I would try to look for have they have they done double um, extraction. You know, so it's always a good sign if the study team uh, has put together two people has had two people independently extract the data from the studies, and you know then they the two people can sit down and compare notes, and if there's things that don't agree can go back to the original papers and figure out why. And, I mean, it sounds it sounds like it should be dead simple to do this, to, to take a paper that's published in the scientific literature and pull out these few key features that you need to, to use for meta-analysis, but actually, it can really be a bit of a nightmare. Um, you know, different papers report things different ways, and it's, uh, you know, as, as systematic as we've become over the years, it's still... Often the case, you're searching through and making, trying to make sure you've got the right odds ratio, the right difference. It's uh, it, it can actually be more complicated than it sounds.
0: And so you're when you when you're talking about extracting information, you're not you're not concerned. Your your main concern, although I presume it's some is, isn't that they've you know sort of just miscoded the data, typed it wrong, that they've mm-hmm. actually. Uh, come to different conclusions about what the study is actually reporting.
4: Right, you know, and it's easy to do if somebody pulls a number off a table, somebody else gets a number out of the text, somebody finds something in a figure, um, and they, you know, you'd hope it's all consistent, but, you know, maybe this is a different, slightly different uh, population they're describing in the figure or something. So it's having two people do it is is actually a good idea. It's good QC.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. Um, and so, most meta analyses, then at least the ones that we've been reviewing, uh, have some sort of, as Don was talking about, assessment of of bias. Can you talk a little bit about how that actually works, and whether we sure. should? I mean, should we? Can I just trust that if it says a study is rated as you know mm-hmm. uh, low risk of bias, that that's mm-hmm. a good study? Well, wait a minute. What
3: are the study we just did? Most of the there were none of the none of the.
0: Yeah, we didn't really get into that. But none of the studies were rated as low bias. Almost none of the studies were rated as low bias. They were like 80% or something
3: were were rated as moderate to high risk of bias, in fact.
4: Well, there's different ways to look for bias, and one way is the sort of looking for internal bias in terms of how the study was conducted, and that's the the risk of bias tool. You know, for clinical trials, Cochrane has a risk of bias assessment tool that is, I believe, what they used in that network meta-analysis, and, you know, that's pretty well documented, I think, it gets a little mushier if you're trying to combine observational studies. There are a couple scales out there, but especially if you're looking at, say, uh, unrandomized treatment studies um, that might come out of, say, administrative data, it's not always clear what the right things to look at are um, for in terms of quality of the mm-hmm. study. Um, and in the, the network meta-analysis you were looking at, I, I don't know what the issues were but it could be, for instance, things like blinding or allocation concealment, especially in some of the earlier studies probably would be.
0: Yeah, I I, I, I don't remember the specifics because, you, again, you had to go through the 256 right. page appendix to go and read. Every which single, you did. Which I did. And I remember. And the thing is, I remember, actually, there was there's one reason that so many of the studies come up. And I am have to dig it up because uh, it's actually I think it's kind of important. Um, and so, I mean, it's. But so so you didn't answer the last question which is can I can I could just take these assessments as at face value <laughs> or is there, are these are these subjective?
4: I mean are these, tr- uh, these are subjective. I think it's as as much as we try to build in uh, criteria that are rigorous for quality assessment of studies. Um this is an area that's always been uh, criticized as being subjective. I mean, mm-hmm. if you go back to, the, I think it was in the '90s, Sander Greenland had a paper saying, you know, quality scoring is inherently subjective, and nobody should ever do it. Um, and that's the title, I think. <laughs> oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, he wasn't mincing any words. No. It was somebody should look that up. Um, but uh, so, so yeah, it's. I think this is often controversial. And having worked on studies myself, which have in later systematic reviews been rated as having less than ideal quality, it is can be a tender point. Can I ask a
2: follow-up question? Um, we, we've mentioned a couple of times in, in these podcasts um, about publication bias, mm-hmm. and I vaguely understand that there is a plot called a um, funnel plot, yeah. which um, if you do that, um, you're, you're to a certain extent, systematically looking at those articles that are included in the meta-analysis, and it gives you some information about whether right. there is publication bias as, as part of the, this collection of studies. Right. Can you explain a little bit how that works?
4: Yeah, sure. Um, and this is a little different than the type of bias we were just discussing, which would be sort of internal in the study methods. This mm-hmm. is looking across the different studies. And for a, a funnel plot, what you do is you take some measure of the precision of the study results. It could be the standard error. Sometimes people use the number of subjects in the study. But um, if, if you put the really precise studies with the really small standard errors up at the top, and then you run, run the, the smaller studies with the more greater standard errors down toward the bottom, you should see a funnel shape. Um, the idea being that there's more scatter. As you get less and less precision, but as long as there's nothing fundamentally different, then it's the center shouldn't shift. Mm. You know that the center will stay the same as you move down, and the precision increases, and it just widens out. So, so
2: could, could you, if you see a greater effect size in that yeah. plot amongst the smaller studies, yep. is 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 that what? Suggests that there that there is public right. that you're missing yeah. some of the some of the
4: yeah and this is often called a small study effect that's sort of the terminology that uh, the more modern meta analysis has sort of moved towards is that there's a small study effect so the small studies are giving you usually it's a more impressive result than the larger studies do and which is counter,
2: do, kind of counterintuitive. That if it's, a, if it's a consistent effect, we should see it in a more pronounced way with a larger study, right?
4: Well, we should see it in a more precise way with a larger study. Mm-hmm. You know, the confidence interval should should shrink in. Mm-hmm. Um, but the effect size shouldn't well, really if, change. But if the non-significant results are less likely to get published... Right. I mean, that's sort of right. The, right. The, the, the issue is that, you know, we're concerned that the publication process itself... Is going to make the small studies that aren't that don't reach a statistically significant result unavailable, unavailable or very delayed in terms of publication.
0: I, so I just want to weigh in here because I went and looked it up. The the reason that most of the studies that were found to be low a high risk of bias in the network meta-analysis was attrition. Patricia was mm. not yeah. being able to a follow to all the patients. I yeah, they,
4: I
2: think, didn't they mention this concept of last observation carried yeah. forward? Yeah. Can mm-hmm. you explain <laughs> a little bit about what that is? Yeah. I thought that
4: That's, seemed really wonky that, to me. That is, it is uh, sort of a, a, a method that was widely used that is no longer in fashion. Let me put it that Good. way. I'm um, <laughs> um, uh, Oh, did, did I offend you? No, Chris? no, no. Just, <laughs> I, I have a
3: tendency to go retro. Oh, OK. <laughs> OK. But, uh, <laughs> So, I'm, but, I'm, my ears pricked up when you said that. Okay. I'm, but that, I'm, putting, I'm about to go to shop for some that. flare pants jeans as well with you know, monogram flowers you on get the Get something
4: thighs. with wide collars and a yeah, wide tie. Yeah, exactly. In, a, butterfly. In, butterfly. in polyester.
2: Yeah. yeah of course.
4: <laughs> cool. cool. And a week. <laughs> So where were we at the beginning
3: of this? No idea. Not a clue. See what we we're had talking to about. With, <laughs> we're talking about. We were talking about. We about and now Last op- observation carried forward. Oh, And an, an amputation for like, you. when you have, have no data. Right. How do you make up the data right. when you have no data?
4: Right. So often in a, in a clinical trial, you know, we'll, we'll sort of bring people in repeatedly to assess the outcome. Mm-hmm. And what they've done in the past is if somebody leaves the study early, before they can get their final outcome assessment, um, they will use the most recent available value and just carry it forward is the terminology. They just take this exact same value and say, okay, it probably didn't change for this person. So is
2: this before they invented censoring?
4: This was before they invented many things. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so, so these days we would do something much more like a, what would be called a multiple imputation analysis, where we would sort of fill in that missing data point, but we would do it repeatedly and with some random error built into it so that it wouldn't make the... Um, standard deviation of that last point be so weird because, uh-huh. you know, if you just take fixed values and pull them forward directly, um, you sort of cut down on the variability a lot. Yeah. And so we have to account for that in a, in a better way. It just seems wrong. Yeah. I, you've <laughs> always been anti last observation carried
0: forward since the moment you heard about I have, it I have, in this recent I analysis. I have in my <laughs> pocket for last
2: observation carried forward.
0: There's a phrase. I There's. have one more question. Okay, go ahead. Sure. Um,
2: Mike, can, 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 um, can you explain the difference? Because I, 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 I know that I suffered from this kind of misconception and I imagine others may have. Um, explain really the methodological, differences between a meta-analysis, as we've been talking about, and an individual patient meta-analysis. Right.
4: In a typical meta-analysis, we use the summary results that are published. So we are pulling them off the table or off the figure. Right. We're going into the published paper and we're pulling values out of that. Um, In an individual patient data meta-analysis, and this usually happens if you've got some kind of collaborative group Um, You know, you get the actual individual patient data. Um, So the original authors send you a data set. Yeah, with with all the patient data in it. Um, And they may, they presumably do things to de-identify it. Right. Um, But they would send you the actual data that they used. And there are some real advantages to doing a meta-analysis with the original data that way, because you can make the outcome be exactly the same from study to study. You can make... You know, you can sort of unify lots of things that, you know, if somebody did a good imputation analysis, somebody else did last observation carried forward, you can go in there and redo the Mm -hmm. last observation carried forward. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it gives you an ability to to sort of correct for any of these analytic issues that may show up. So it's
2: potentially more rigorous.
4: Yeah, yeah. And it also, one of the things we often try to do in a meta-analysis, if we get inconsistent results, you know, this, this comes under the heading of heterogeneity, where we have a lot of excess variation in the study outcomes, um, we might want to go in there and look for factors that are linked to that. To that variability. So we might do a regression style analysis. Now, if you have the individual patient data, that regression style analysis is much more powerful mm-hmm. because, you know we can adjust for the mean age in a study, or we can actually get into the patient level and adjust for that patient's mm-hmm. age. And that's a much better way to go. Um, because, you know if you look at clinical trials, the mean ages are not going to vary that much um, you know, for a particular medication. But within a study, that age can, range can be quite broad. Do you think that, um,
2: the, that, that the, the scientific community is moving in that direction with the um, increasing requirement by funders like the Gates Foundation and like the NIH that you eventually post your data set and make it publicly accessible so that those individual patient uh, meta-analyses Will become easier and um, more accessible to uh, you know sort of the average researcher?
4: I think so. But, you know, there is a, an issue with, uh, you know, the, some of the studies that are done, especially RCTs, which are uh, company funded, because mm. there's no such mechanism that requires them mm. necessarily to make their data publicly available. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say some companies don't do it, but the, I, I don't think there's the same kind of enforcement.
2: Mechanism. And there's not
4: the same kind of
3: incentive either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, if I could jump
4: in here, because th- this,
3: this is a great segue back to that paper that you mentioned, the John Ioannidis paper in Philosophy, Ethics, and Humanities, 2008. Uh-huh. where he talks about this you know he basically provides this great example of publication bias um, and the this was also on antidepressants and in that study they uh, which was ba- his, his 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 essay is basically describing a meta-analysis published by Turner et al in the New England Journal of Medicine that yeah. year and so in that analysis they had looked at a essentially what was a complete dossier of clinical trials. That mm-hmm. is to say, they went to the FDA and they were able to access all of the studies that had been done, irrespective of whether they were eventually published. So it was all the information that was available, And then they could compare the effect sizes that came out of those two, the analysis, which was as the FDA saw it, versus the analysis that was based on the published data. And the results were quite different. So on average, the FDA dossier suggested that the standardized effect sizes for antidepressants was around 03 Mm-hmm. And for the as published meta-analysis, it was around 0.6, roughly double, higher, yeah. much higher, much more <laughs> efficacious. And so then, when you drilled down and really? looked at the, <laughs> you know, looked oh, at the, no. the fate of the studies, there were 74 studies in the FDA dossier here, uh, of which 26 remained unpublished, mm-hmm. and 48 were actually published. Now, when then you look at what was the direction of publication bias based on the outcomes of the study, this is where it gets really kind of a little bit you know, eyebrows go up sharply. Uh, well, well, um, I'm just um, trying to
0: see where the question is. from. So,
3: well, we're going to ask him to come it.
0: Um, so we had 30, 38 of these 74
3: studies uh, reported a positive effect of the antidepressants. I was that told there was there would a be good no mass. Of those 38 positive studies, 37 of them got published and one was unpublished. Okay. So almost all of them. Yep. Of the, the 36 out of 74 that were negative or equivocal, Twenty-two never got published at all. Yeah. Eleven were published, but were spun in the editorial to suggest that they actually were positive studies, even though they weren't, according to the FDA dossier. And um, of the remaining three, uh, only three actually. Uh, one, one is, I think, is only one out of the three actually got. Got published, yeah. so so um, so it, it, it's really. Do so you think a, they have ulterior motives? Uh, absolutely. So, in other words, this this issue of publication bias is, is not it's not it's not an eye. It's not it's a not, little thing. Yeah. It's, a, it's a huge no, thing. No, it's,
4: that's that's exactly right. I mean, in that Turner study, uh, looking at if you look through that paper, it is eye opening because they actually have a a table. Well, sort of. It's more of a a graph, I guess. But they they break the studies out by how the FDA viewed them. Were they positive studies, and you know, meaning that they led credence to uh, making this drug available, um, or were they ambiguous, or were they negative? And you know, they color coded uh, the studies by drug and showed you which were published, which were not published. And it's yeah, it was pretty striking. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: All right. Well, we got to, unfortunately, we got to end it there. Um, Mike, thanks so much for, thanks, for coming Mike. on the My
3: podcast. This this great. It's a it. pleasure. Super cool. You should come back. Yeah. yeah
0: absolutely. <laughs> All right. So, finally, in our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing segment, we want to highlight some of the things that uh, make us enjoy our jobs even more than we already do. Look at the weird and wacky stuff that goes on in our field or stuff that is just uh, inspiring to Chris or is, um, I'm not even going to categorize the things that Chris. Likes to talk about. So, Chris, why don't we just Pretty actually st- start with you? Sorry, Don. I know I told you I was going to start with you, but I like to change it up. Okay, Don. <laughs> okay, Chris. Are you all right with that?
2: Yeah. All okay, right. It, You've wrong. already spent 28 or 30 minutes, haven't you? Oh, well, I, I'll have to speak extremely fast I'm then. hitting the timer. starting
0: okay. now. Right, Go. You.
3: So um, this was a, a, a study that I, I twigged to after... Sp- seeing it highlighted in the New York Times. It was a social science study by the lead author Vosugi, F-V-O-S-O-U-G-H-I and colleagues published in uh, Science 2018. And they were um, really interested in this issue of uh, how um, information disseminates through the Twitterverse. Uh, mm. and whether there's a differential the effect of true, of true rumors <laughs> versus false rumors and how well they do in the, you know, this is all sort of in the context of the recent presidential election, and very the, if it's, the Russians spinning the if election. It's,
0: and so. If it's true, is it a rumor? So they,
3: they they called all of these things rumors, but they later categorized them into false and, and okay. true rumors okay. as opposed to fake news, which okay. has become a, a more political term. Um, and so, they you know, they start with the premise that, 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 you know, truth is essential for making decisions about practically anything. So this is this is an important issue, right?
0: Mm-hmm. We, we it's not how we
3: make mostly economic make economic decisions. decisions, or decide who to go to war with, or where to spend our money. We'd like to have some actual facts rather than rumors. Okay. Um, so they said that in, you know, while truth is very important, that falsehoods are a widespread, especially in social networks, are b very difficult to spot, and c are capable of causing immense harm, uh-huh. as we have. Uh, scene. and this problem has gotten worse uh, in the in the setting of social media and particularly Twitter, um, where it's very difficult to know where these in, these 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 messages originate. And so what they did is they, they, uh, they analyzed Twitter cascades, meaning there was a message sent out then then rippled through the Twitterverse with multiple retweets. Twitter sphere. And so they, they wanted to see that into the Twitter sphere. They wanted to see, like, you know, if you, you, know, you tweet a message, how many subsequent users will retweet that message and how will it branch? And overall, how many total tweets will generate off of that one message?
0: The answer to when I tweet things out is zero.
3: Well, that's my experience, yeah. too.
0: I, I'm like incredulous.
3: Yeah. For me, Twitter doesn't work at all. Uh, the number of
0: times I've thought I've tweeted out something really funny. <laughs> Leslie, n- nobody, you must have a different experience. Nobody tweets it.
3: Yeah. That's right. No, none of my jokes get retweeted. Yeah. I, and I have a really good one, but I'll tell you later. You, oh, might, you might question why. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. so they, they they did this analysis um, using basically big data that they'd harvest off of Twitter. Yep. Uh, and using all sorts of fancy programs to sort of you know automatically triage rumors into True or false rumors? Because there were a lot of them. They started with 126,000 rumors, yep. um, and some of them were false, and some of them were true. And what they found, which is really interesting, was that the um, that there is a a larger, surprisingly far larger number of true rumors that are initiated. And so the spread of false rumors, rumors. is not because there are more false rumors started. It is because people do not generally enjoy reading true rumors. No, it's they boring. find them boring. Yeah. Right by contrast, so like you know, the, the number of true rumors was like ranged from being a thousand to ten thousand, whereas the number of false rumors was less, generally less than thousand. So it's it's a it's a comparative minority, but the impact of the false rumors was was yeah. vast, far f- far more penetration than the true rumors, and so the the ripple effect of the false rumors vastly exceeded the true rumors by by a log order. Um, it was really kind of a profound mm-hmm. and very cynical. Uh, revelation about how about our thirst as a society for for
0: believing things that are striking and kind of extreme and novel. Is this not thematically linked to the the comments that we've made a million times about the headlines that get picked up on these studies? That that what the media is interested in are the things that are it doesn't ma- the the things that are most likely to not be true. The things that are novel and and crazy and we just want to be true.
2: Sensationalism.
3: Yeah, I'm, exactly. I'm I'm glad you 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 made that point because that's You're why welcome. I selected this paper. Bring it Oh, Matt, it's exactly it the same thing that, you know, this is where the asparagus causes cancer studies become so popular in the public meme. It's because who would have thought something so crazy could be true? Wow. So i got to go tell true. everybody. Can
0: I just say that that's not true? Um, it might be true. I don't know. I don't know,
3: I I don't know either. I love asparagus.
2: So that's a false rumor. That's, that's not a, a, false a rumor. true rumor. I don't think there's that's such a, false thing a true A true rumor, rumor an oxymoron,
3: <laughs> so isn't it?
0: All right. Well, anyway, that's a good one. I like I that was Chris. A, was a
3: great study. So I, I encourage people to read the original paper. It's really interesting.
0: Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take the um whatever the Chair's
3: prerogative. Chair's
0: prerogative and, and go second because mine follows on perfectly from that, which right. is mine is actually a course syllabus. It's a course syllabus by uh, two guys from the University of Washington named uh, Carl Bergstrom and Jevin, Jevin West, J-E-V-I-N, Jevin West. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Um, and these guys got a lot of, they actually got a lot of press for this uh, course that they put together. At first, I have to say, I thought maybe this was one of those things that people put together as a syllabus and just put it out there as a joke. I'm very prone to believing these things, so I assume that it probably was. But it turns out this is an actual course you can go online and watch. They've made all their uh, lectures public. The title so it's of the... A Moog? No, I don't. Well, I think it's just a YouTube thing. Okay. The title of the course is Calling BS in the Age of Big Data. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a course, so let me me just read to you the synopsis. Our world is saturated with BS. Learn to detect it and diffuse it. The course will be offered as a one credit seminar, blah, 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 blah. Um, Did they actually say that? What? Blah 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 blah.
3: No. Because that would go along with the BS theme. The they don't, learning, don't actually say BS. The either. learning
0: <laughs> object they don't. Learning <laughs> objectives are remain vigilant for BS contaminating your information diet, recognize said BS whenever and wherever you encounter oh, it. I figure love out it. your figure out your for yourself precisely why a particular bit of BS is BS. Uh, provide a statistician or fellow scientist with a technical explanation of why a claim is BS, and provide your crystals and homeopathy <laughs> <laughs> Crystals and homeopathy Aunt, with an accessible and persuasive explanation of why a claim is BS. Oh, that's beautiful. And you can go online
2: and you can watch all their lectures. Oh, I want to get a master's in that. It's wow. really well done. Wow, wow. So putting our,
3: our two studies together, it means that consumption of BS leads to verberia. Right.
2: That staying in? All right, Don, what so so do you So, Chris, when you're listening to this podcast, you're going to start laughing oh, before you get to the punchline, like uh-huh. you always do. Uh-huh. Yeah.
3: What I've noticed is that my laughs gather in intensity and duration when I have daughters in the
2: car. <laughs> so, Don, what do you got for us? All right. So, um, I didn't realize this, but um, apparently um, the, the propensity of mass drivers to drive to the very... End of a um, open merge. Merge. I, I do it all the time. Right. Meaning you wait till the last minute. N- no, no. You go to the front of the line, and, yeah. you, and rather than merging you early, you merge late. Yeah. And And it's considered yeah, yeah, yeah. So wait considered, wait considered to be a very hostile thing to
0: do. Okay. Wait a minute. We have this. We have this fight in my house all the time, and I know. I think I know what the answer is. Go ahead.
2: So apparently, it, the the Department of Transportation in Massachusetts has been trying to get people to actually. Do that, despite merge the fact late. that we all get really pissed off nope. when somebody goes past us and goes to the front of the line and then merge. And apparently it's called a zipper merge. Absolutely. And it is 35% more efficient in moving people from point A to point B when there's a traffic jam like that and there's an open open lane. Yes. Wow. So this is justification for mass holes to continue to doing what they are pilloried for <laughs> all
0: over the state. So two things. So yes, this is the use. You should use all available space. Yes. And merge. You should merge as late as possible. And this is, it's not efficient necessarily for the person who's in the traffic. It's efficient for moving cars behind you.
3: Right. Forward. Because they're blocking the lanes behind them. Exactly. And, and plugging
0: up the highway. Yes. But and it so still I, pisses me off. As soon as I learned of this, I, I now do this. I feel really bad about it. But I am that guy who cuts in. Are you really? I am because i it's good for traffic. I'm
3: with Matt. I and do it that's too.
0: what I, I tell myself. Second of all, I believe it was you who told me. It, we should point out here that Don is a new yorker so he's taking every
2: every <laughs> opportunity to, to point out Ma- Massels, Massels. to
0: point out that new york drivers are only the second worst drivers no, no. in the new united york states no no new york drivers are great oh, all the wow. roads
2: are perpendicular or parallel it's not as the roads, to Massachusetts meaning that there's no challenge none, none so whatsoever meaning that there, yeah meaning that there's very little conflict
0: but i believe it was you who told me that when you moved here you learn that there is no potential space between two cars that you can into which I into. cannot merge. Yes, that's true. Which that I that agree. was a skill I learned in my school. I agree 100. So yeah, you learned All first. Right. Well,
3: you're now a prodigal son.
0: Well, that's the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at @PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at @ProfMattFox, or Chris at @IDGill or Don at at Dthea1. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast. And Nick Guler, who is going to be awake for hours editing this one. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you download the next episode.